it's almost like you 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 become an intercessor, you know, of of particular stories where you your responsibility really it is to to illuminate certain histories. But also, I think one of the things that I've learned with this form of working, it it's to do with how one is named, really. My name is Kumbuzo Sizwe Makanula. But the, really my names, my two names, Skumbuzo Sizwe, speaks to like, be the one who reminds the nation. Uh, Skumbuzo Remembrance, Sizwe, the nation. From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, this is the ICA podcast where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull, and you're listening to episode six, featuring visual and performance artist Sikumbuzo Makandula. I'm writing history, but history using my own body. I'm narrating stories. I'm also problematizing or challenging certain histories, questioning what is my own positionality, what is the collective responsibility and duty towards the work itself. It's just more than just being it about me, the body is Kumbuzo, but it becomes to be to be witnessed as collectively to speak to other bigger conversations. <laughs> The voice you're hearing now is Makandula's collaborator, the South African opera singer Mdokazi, in the live performance of Makandula's work titled Ngoma Katio Soga, which is inspired by the hymns of the 19th century Xhosa intellectual and Presbyterian priest Tio Zesani Soga. It's September 2018. And a large audience has gathered in the Iziko South African National Gallery in Cape Town to watch Ngoma Katio Soga at the ICA Live Art Festival. Makandula is positioned in the centre of the performance space, alongside four musicians. He kneels onto the floor where a Bible is placed, opens the Bible in the middle, and begins to hammer a three-inch nail through each side. We'll be returning to the scene from Ngomakati Osoga, but more important than the scene itself, this episode is about the academic and artistic inquiry that informs it. Makandula's practice incorporates multiple artistic disciplines, performance, photography, installation, sculpture, and video, which has resulted in a large body of work spanning more than a decade. Today, we focus on two performative works, Ngomakati Osoga and the earlier public intervention in Klumbo, in order to dive into Makandula's interrogation of the violence of the missionary agenda in South Africa, how to navigate the intersecting worlds of Christianity and African spirituality, and whether the act of remembering buried histories might make possible new ways of being. 
Watching one of Makandula's works is like stepping into a carefully curated collection. Each sound and image and artifact that he introduces carries a particular history that he has excavated and examined in collaboration with academics, musicians and writers. But this is not an archive we are permitted to observe passively. With Kumbuzo's performances, one generally does experience it as a ritual. It's something that you are undergoing as a, it's a spiritual experience. It's in the way that he uses music. It's in the way that he gets people to participate. You become part of the society that's trying to change something. That's academic and art historian Dr. Namusa Makubu, who supervised Makandula's master's research at the University of Cape Town, and who we'll be hearing from again as we move between the gallery, the studio, and the small Eastern Cape city of Makanda, formerly known as Grahamstown, where Makandula spent four years as a fine arts student. But we begin where his own practice of historical and sonic excavation first begins. So we are in my studio in Orange Street, UCT. This is where the thinking happens. This is where the conceptualizing happens. Um, this is where I plot different types of wars. I try to really come in and just get into the work straight up. Typically there's music in the studio. Normally they would, to start off the day, there would be a simple diner blasting or a bit of a Caesarea Evoria, just to get me in the mood. If the work is very inanimate, then thinking around ways of uh, animating it, then I would bring in instruments, musical instruments. So in here I have like a lot of bells, uh, different types of bells. So at my desk I have this tambourine that's, yeah, you know, um, it always helps just to kind of imagine what, how a, a movement, an image could start moving. The work really starts with music before I even get to the image because the sound is the important aspect. It starts very sort of rhythmically where you would have like very kind of a, a silent like, um, you know, sound such as the bell. Then sometimes gradually sort of pace up to something more like this. Then sometimes really to kind of foreground what I'm intending to do, then you would have a kind of a more kind of a pronounced sound, which would be very much like uh, Once you ring just a bell, it could be a church bell or it could be a school bell. Within the public space, you're inviting people to recall or rather like to remind people like how they socialized. 
And by doing that, then you, you're allowing them to negotiate with history at a one-on-one level. Then the work really sort of gets juxtaposed between the sound and then I start developing um, the kind of a wording. That's the incantation that I use within Ingomagadiosoka. You're posing a question to the audience, which is, have you fulfilled your own, your own promise? And you start also like calling out people, certain people. It's like the work has its own mission that it has to kind of fulfill. I'm currently reading the work of William Wellington Gopa, Sizu uh, Esnembali, which is Kosa Histories and Poetry from 1873 to 1888, which really um, much undergirds the work that I'm currently doing, but also in terms of the space and place that I'm working within, which happens to be what we call the Cape, the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape. What does it mean to walk the land? What does it mean to stand? What does it mean to breathe in the spaces? What does it mean to remember in the spaces? What does it mean to look back? How does the the land, the soil, the air speaks to my body? Um, and how do I breathe through that? I grew up in different places. Um, I was born in a town called the R, Northern Cape. But I grew up between Mbumalanga and Eastern Cape. So at home, really grew up in a very loving home. Grew up in a big family, siblings and extended family, like cousins. And um, yeah, I used to go to church when I was young. At first it wasn't by choice, of course, but my grandparents were into church, like you have to go to church on Sunday. Da, da, da. Also very much involved within the, the church structures and stuff. Yeah, that's my growing up. But uh, it, it was very much shaped by different spaces that I grew up in. Is there a particular place that had the greatest influence on your creative inspirations? I think the most would be when I moved to Makanda, a, a town with so many churches. They, um, I was reminded a lot about my upbringing, also like the, the history date because of architecture. It was like I'm living in the, in the mid-19th century, you know. I started to engage with the architecture, the geography, the landscape, and started to, to understand more the, why I'm positioned there at that particular time. It had a very powerful influence around the work being performative because here I was in the middle of deep Eastern Cape and to to move to the next city like it's an hour away, 
So there wasn't really much to do, but I had to find ways to inspire myself. Then the history really became my entry point because whilst there I read like a lot of historical material. In the 1980s or so, there was a huge division in the cathedral congregation about the wording on some of the memorial plaques, quite a few of them on the walls, because the words used are now very offensive. This narration is from a short video work that Makandula made as a fine arts student at Rhodes University in Makanda. The video is titled Part of the History, and it was one of a number of works Makandula created over the course of his degree that probed issues of memorialization, erasure, and the recovering of forgotten histories against the backdrop of Makanda's main Anglican church, the Cathedral of St. Michael and St. George. And a large number of the congregation, led largely by theological students from what was then St. Paul's College, said, take those plaques down. As the camera zooms in on the memorial plaques engraved in marble on the cathedral walls, parishioner Clive Whitford explains the circumstances that led to the plaques being partially covered over. And other people said, oh, but uh, that's part of history. And when those words were used, 1830, 1840, it was a perfectly polite word. And so that's part of the history. If it's part of the history, put it in a museum, not in a church, was the answer to that one. Eventually they got hold of marble strips and all the horrible words had a piece of marble stuck across the top so that you can still see what's said, but the horrible word is not used or can't be seen. I want to go back a bit again to before you were doing your fine art degree. You said in 2008 it became apparent that I had a calling and the calling that I had needed me to trace back my lineage. And this was the the lineage of your mother's side of the family, which was a deeply religious Anglican family. How how did this calling manifest itself? I mean, it, it manifested in my practice through the interrogation of, or rather me really interrogating the institution that is the church. My mom comes from a, from a family of sangomas, of people who practice as healers, as sangomas. And then for some reason, that kind of uh, practice within the family, it stopped. But for me, it, it became something that I needed to, to, for my own personal journey, to, to observe that. Well, we have this history and we can't just uh, deny it or we can't just suppress it. But also, I mean, grappling, coming to terms with my own Christianization, growing up within this church, growing up within in this very particular family which practices both African spirituality and Christianity. So at the time I was grappling with these things of negotiating the two. In 2016, in his final year at Rhodes University, Makandula concluded his body of work focusing on the interior of the Anglican Cathedral, 
with a processional performance that engaged with the history of the church once more, but this time taking place outside of the cathedral doors. Performed in collaboration with violinist Christopher Jardine, the work started on the pavement outside the church, and from there the procession made its way down Makanda's High Street to the entrance of the Rhodes University campus about 500 meters away. This public intervention called Inkumbo, meaning wrath or anger, coincided with the height of the Fees Must Fall student protests that erupted in universities across South Africa, including Rhodes University, between 2015 and 2017 in demand of free decolonial education. And so, while seeking to unearth silenced historical narratives, the work was also a response to the immediate threat of institutional force and violence that student activists were facing at the time. The performance, it started off with kind of a very processionally, where I was carrying a skull and I was ringing the bell. Dressed in a long black trench coat and balaclava, Makandula approached two audience members and rang the bell directly at them, a few inches from their faces, for longer and louder than they could comfortably sustain, while Paganini's second violin concerto played on. Here's violinist Christopher Jardine. Working with Scambuzo is a very, a very strong current that I get, is agitation, but it's exactly within my intentions to be unnerved, not to be practiced and polished and, you know, finessed. It's very agitating and disruptive. In my earlier performance or my earlier works, I used to wear this red sort of a cassock, um, which is an altar boy's um, or girl's sort of this red kind of a tunic. So subsequently, I, I was tearing apart uh, with an old copy this tunic, this red tunic that I would wear, and then I put it on fire. For art historian Namusa Makubu, witnessing in Klumbo marked her very first encounter with Makandula's work. I mean, you know, this town is a one-street town, so this is the main street in the entire town. And in front of this cathedral was this fantastic fire. And these cars were passing by, and people were just like, oh my goodness, people are burning the cathedral. <laughs> but it was just so beautiful because it was like a cleansing of that city. The burning of the, the red tunic was really to speak to a history of the, the implicitness of the church within land dispossession and um, land that was taken from Omakosa. procession then it moved from that particular spot in front of the cathedral down right along the high street where the next memorial where we stop was um, the statue dedicated to Elizabeth Elizabeth Salts who was a woman who helped to carry the gunpowder during the 1819 war which was taking place in Grahamstown. So, in a way, she helped the settlers to win that particular war. So that memorial really, like, it is dedicated to her bravery. 
But what I didn't see in the memorial was, was to talk about, um, again, the, the erasure of other narratives. So uh, what I did was on the memorial, I inscribed um, on one side, which was just, which I didn't have any inscription. I wrote Nzambe, Ngele, Nzaba, to kind of talk to uh, the idea of the regiment, the, the Nzambe regiment, which was actually present in the same time as Elizabeth Salt was, to remember them also that they were put, they took part in the, the, the Battle of Grimstown. It's like working with the spirits and the ghosts of, of not of Makanda actually, of Grahamstown. You know, because I mean, I think that's, that space is heavily haunted. I don't mean in the kind of, you know, ghoulish stories and so on, but I think it's, it's got a, a colonial history that's so readily present. It's in the buildings, it's in the design of, of that city. You smell it, you feel it, you taste it every day. And then the work proceeded to the next stop. This next station that Makandula led the audience to, as well as curious passers-by who joined along the way, was the original 1820 monument, which stands in a traffic island between the two sides of High Street, almost like a piece taken out of Stonehenge, two large, roughly chiselled stone pillars, maybe three metres in height, with a shorter block of stone lying perpendicular on top of them. The inscription at the bottom reads, To the British settlers of 1820, to whom South Africa owes so much. Everything that is colonial, all of those colonial buildings, that is the imagined fantasy, colonial fantasy that we can refer to as Grahamstown. Beneath it and above it, the life that is happening now, the life that existed you know, way back, that is Makanda. It became like a, a reckoning. The crowd then reached the final station of Mpumbo, the Drosty Arch, which is the entryway to the Rhodes University campus. By this point of the performance, the late evening light had faded completely, and as the witnesses approached the arch and the installation set up beneath it, the yellowish glow from the street lamps behind them cast long shadows onto the archway wall. And there, I've already hung up a noose by the entrance. Throughout the whole procession, I was carrying the skull, which was actually burning with incense. So I placed that skull on top of that, the ladder, like a step ladder that I've placed. The arch is an iconic feature of Makanda today, and particularly of the Rhodes University campus, which is often photographed with the arch in the foreground and the university clock tower behind it. But in 19th century Grahamstown, it was the site of public hangings. What I first did was to give the audience each a match stick. And after that, I gave them Molotov cocktails, which is petrol bombs. It was really like to kind of like to bring out that particular history, which is not really known, but also kind of emerged with the current violence, which then the university was projecting towards the students. It's 2016, it's at the height of Fismas 4. Tensions are very high. So it was really a way to synthesize as to what it, where we're standing and what, what does this, these spaces in which we're standing and we're facing, uh, or do they symbolically illuminate in the final moments of the work, 
the audience members, who have become a kind of travelling congregation, are deserted by their guide. Makandula walks away into the darkness, leaving the witnesses in front of the arch, standing there with their matchsticks and Molotov cocktails, which are not merely symbolic objects or a gesture towards the ability to inflict damage, but the thing itself, actual matchsticks and glass bottles, rags sticking out the top, filled with petrol. The course that we're treading is disruptive. What we're calling out are very violent spaces and very painful, hurt spaces. It's, it's, a, you know, it's uncomfortable, the kind of work that we're creating. And then also it has to be uncomfortable for people who see or hear what's going on. In, in his very intricate teasing out of the hidden histories, he becomes this sage of rewriting and re-inscribing that history in the city spaces. A lot of the time we would navigate the high street, but never really understood what these memorials and statues are for. So in a way also it was to invite your typical pedestrian, allow them, invite them to then share this kind of a history of town that we all live in, you know, all we call, call home. You don't feel that the performance is happening in place. It's a place that requires it. It requires an intervention of that sort. By virtue of doing it within the public domain, it is to invite the, the public as witnesses, not as just passive audience, but to really like to witness these moments. And then as we're witnessing these moments, then we start to think around how would we then want to engage with these moving forward. This community of active, informed witnesses that Makandula's works urge and provoke into being is nowhere more powerfully experienced than in this large body of work exploring the life and legacy of Reverend Tio Zesani Soga. The English took the land around what is called Fort of Fort today and they named it Kadvima Settlement. This is the voice of historian Dr. No Tamsang Altisani and the short lecture she's giving, situating Tiosoga's life in its historical and geographical context, formed part of the National Arts Festival iteration of Ngoma Ka Tiosoga in 2019. Who came to listen to this strange news that was being told? And they associated themselves with the news. And they were named those whose hearts had been pierced by the word. Dr. Tisani was one of many important academic and musical collaborators that Makandula engaged with in thinking through Soga's enduring contribution. Reading texts from over a century ago and consulting his contemporaries on the meaning of Soga's oral repertoire today, Makandula set up a conversation with these thinkers across time and space to bring the performance of Ngomakatiyo Soga into being. But before we get there, 
we must first step back into Makandula's art studio. We, then we're looking at these photographs over here. Within my practice, I engage a lot with like archival photographs and then how I use that within my own work, both as a photograph, but also then how to think of it as a, as a moving object or moving image. Diosoga comes up as one individual, one intellectual, who really has contributed so much within our present day. Tio Soga was born in 1829 in the rural village of Tume, which is in what is today the Central Eastern Cape. Soga was the first black South African to be educated overseas and to be ordained as a priest in the Presbyterian Church. He was also the first black missionary among his community in Mgwali, and contributed to some of the earliest translations of the Bible into Sitkosa. Historians have often written of Soga as a divided character, standing in and between the worlds of Western Christian civilization on the one hand, and closer culture and tradition on the other, although Makandula sees things a bit differently. I wouldn't see himself like as a divided person per se, but I would, I would say he negotiated the two spaces as both a Kosa who happens to be a Christian, whereas other missionaries were very much about you need to do away with certain traditional rites. He, he saw the good in the both, so he had this kind of a, a dual life. Of particular importance to Makandula is the 31 Kosa hymns that Teosoga composed and wrote for the Presbyterian hymn book. His songs, uh, compositions, has a long span. 180 years later, we're still using in schools, we're still using in uh, churches, still using in a context of protests, you know. But also just to learn that actually his music was really used, or rather was prescribed as music to be sung within black schools, which is missionary schools. It forces one then to start thinking around if these songs were prescribed for schools in the mid-19th century in South Africa, why are we still singing them? What is the relevance then of these songs? These questions, which had been driving Makandula's written research, took an embodied form for the first time in the performance of Ngomakatiya Soga at the ICA Live Art Festival. Which brings us back to where we began, in the Aziko National Gallery on a September evening in 2018. Entering the large room of the gallery that night, you heard the powerful voice of South African opera singer Mtokwazi singing about the arrival and impact of the British missionaries. But you couldn't yet see her. What you could see directly in front of you was the figure of Sikumbuzo Makandula dressed in a black gown, black gloves, a Victorian-style bowler hat, and black veil. In a way, it, 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 it speaks to Oguzila, meaning to, to mourn, but to mourn for the country, for that which hasn't happened, you know, uh, to mourn for things that hasn't been said. In earlier works, Makandula's appearance had often been obscured by a coat and headdress, but now, with this thick veil over his face, he was completely unidentifiable. And beneath it, he too struggled to make out the audience clearly. 
people were blinded by, by the arrival of the missionaries, the arrival of the, the Bible, arrival of the, the civilizing agenda. It, it, it also comes with the works of Uyale um, Manis, where he writes about that which has brought our destruction. The work moves slowly at first, with Makandula leading the audience through this fleeting exhibition of sound, image and ritual that starts with a Eucharistic ceremony in which he offers the audience communion-like hosts with the words Zisani and Goma written on them. Makandula then ushers the audience to a light box a few meters away, illuminating archival photos and drawings of early British missionaries in the Eastern Cape and the closer chiefs and kings who encountered them. The audience encircles the light box from a distance of one or two meters until Makandula chooses certain viewers to draw closer and place on top of the images either a white bead where the chiefs appear or a nail over the faces of the missionaries. At the station that follows, we watch the video documentation from Makandula's very first visit to the grave of Teosoga in 2018. Earlier that year, he had managed to track down the great-granddaughter of Teosoga, Felicity O'Brien, who agreed to accompany him to Soga's grave in Tutucha, just outside of East London. In the video, Felicity O'Brien opens the steel gate leading to the graveyard, and Teosoga's headstone comes into view. Makandula pronounces himself and his clan names to Soga, his intention for visiting, and for the research that he has embarked on. The video is not projected onto a screen, but onto a fabric called Ngawe. Ngawe, it is a white blanket with a black stripe. How it comes to be associated with a makosa is interesting because it's not an authentic thing, because it's a white blanket that's brought by the missionaries. But then there's a way to kind of foster conversations, to foster um, trade with Amakosa. Then there's an exchange of how then the blanket is used by Amapagati, the councillors of a chief. Then it evolves to be used by the elders to signify their status within that particular society. So I intimate towards Diosoga, his status as an elderly, as someone with wisdom. But also he writes about the blanket for himself, warning the people of the dangers, the good and the bad that is brought by the white missionaries. The ringing bell signals another station, another move, this time to the opposite side of the gallery space, where Makandula applies crosses to the foreheads of audience members, like a priest on Ash Wednesday. Except that in Ngomakati Osoga, the cross is not made of ash, but of red ochre, known in Kosa as Imbola. Imbola is really a very loaded material because Imbola was associated with non-converts, heathens, if you want to call them that. So it was speaking around the colonial agenda of having to, to convert to Christianity. 
Within this blend of conflicting references, Bible, Mbola, Bola hat, the blanket that is an inherited symbol of authentic closeness, there is an evocation of Teosoga's struggle between tradition and modernity, and something of Makandula's own process of negotiation as the descendant of traditional healers and Christian converts. When Makandula places Mbola crosses on the foreheads of the musicians who now surround him, and opera singer Mtakwazi enters the performance space, the focus of the work shifts from a visual to an oral archive. In my conversations with Namusa Makubu and Christopher Jardine, they reflected on the work's soundscape and responsiveness, as improvisational intervention. When it comes to translating the concept into sound, it is a conversation. You know, the, the violin resonates as a chordal instrument and so does the voice, a calling and a responding. There's a lot of things that don't actually go into planning but actually end up happening. And I think there's there's something quite important because his work actually becomes more responsive. It's, it's more about what is the space telling me? How do I listen to what the space is, is asking of me? Right now I'm not reading from a script. I'm riffing. I'm, you know, in that sense of improvisation but that that was the manner of how we came about with the sounds and how to handle the meaning that we were trying to convey at the work's climax the bible becomes its own instrument of meaning making and musical improvisation makandula kneels onto an enclave blanket spread out on the floor he rubs imbola into the pages of the bible and then hammers in the nails to the beat of the drums and the rhythm of the bow. This moment that marries Christian imagery with violent power sits within a series of performative provocations that Makandula has interrogated and experimented with over the course of his career, including burning the altar boy's tunic in Nklumbo, burning a Bible in front of Cape Town's St. George's Cathedral in the 2019 work Umklamboluko, as well as later performances of Ngomakati Osoga, where audience members were not only past the Bible with the nails sticking out of it, but were called upon to hammer in the nails themselves. I wanted to know how Makandula had observed audiences' reactions to these moments, particularly considering how religious a nation South Africa continues to be. The first time was in Ngomagutiyosoga, the security personnel at the Nash Izigo, the South African National Gallery, saw that, and they waited for me to finish. They waited for the performance to finish. So they came back and they 
in a very kind of a subtle way, they demanded answers. Why, why did you place an old copy in between the Bible and also why the nailing and also why the use of imbola? I needed really to kind of give them a history as to how the work is researched, the violence that, that came with the church and how people have imbibed or really internalized that violence. We no longer now, we don't, we don't longer have a white missionary kind of forcefully, but I think now we have these black preachers, evangelical, who do use the word in, in, and actually misconstrues the word to perpetuate a particular agenda. And in the other time, it was actually now in Makanda. And again, I did the very same gesture there. And people there were elderly people who were very staunch Christians. And there, they were like, it wasn't even just about nailing, but also it was really about why would you apply Imbon on the Bible, the paradox in this gesture. And then for them, it was about a conversation really that they haven't had in this intergenerational conversation around how, as black families, what we understand as religion. For me, those actions, I, whenever I do them, I do them publicly. So, so the work really is not, I don't come in within the spaces thinking that I'm just going to like burn the Bible and think that's okay to burn the Bible. Really, I think it's to, to think around um, once that Bible is lit up, what, what comes out of that gesture? Whilst the song is playing and you're asked to, to nail the Bible, what am I asked to do here? What am I asked to, to look toward? It's not just a moment of just spectacle, but it's a moment of rapturing, that once this rapture happens, what does it allow us to, to, to account for as witnesses? I come with the work open-ended. I don't go with the full answers, but I go with a set of questions. It starts with me in my own thinking. It starts with me writing it down, conceptualizing how it's all gonna pan out, but it end up not being the case of me being the one who's concluded the work. It's something that has to be negotiated with the, the audience, with the witnesses of the work. It becomes a collective work, which then people get to account for themselves as to we did that. We had this moment, we had the experience of an encounter where we were able to, to see ourselves, to be reflected. I think once the work reaches that stage of when people like are able to question the moment that there's a way to negotiate, that there's a way around this, there's a way around this narrative, then that the work, in a way, uh, justice, you know, is done. The IC podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It is edited and produced by me, Catherine Bull. 
Music in this episode includes Smooth Stone by Blue Dot Sessions and from the recordings of Ngomakati Osoga, original compositions by Mtkwazi performed in collaboration with Christopher Jardine, Wanditanda Makandula and Mawetu Mapotolo. Join us next time when we'll be speaking to visual artist Meghna Singh. See you then, and thanks, as always, for listening.